space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Shh, the Trekkies are talking. It's mission to explore the Star Trek canon, to seek out new interpretations of human spirituality, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Episode 1, Balancing Individuality versus Hive Mind. A conversation about I versus we. Ayn Rand explored it in 1938 in her book Anthem. Roddenberry and Hurley explore it with the Borg. Was Hugh's existence improved by learning about individuality and by learning that his culture did not allow for such a thing? What does that mean even? We are social creatures and also individuals. We need both I and we. How do we balance individuality versus the hive mind? What does the Star Trek The Next Generation Borg canon tell us about how to answer this question and address the issue of individuality, i.e. the good of the one versus many for ourselves in our lives? Okay. Okay. Just have to accept that. Okay. So and I and I figured out how to get the uh, the waiting room. So the waiting oh. room is up. So oh. it it just has a a buffer. A, okay. In case somebody happens to join in. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. So there are seven episodes that we watched for this. Um, Star Trek: The Next Generation, the Borg. Um, so the first one is the uh, season one, episode twenty six. It's called the Neutral Zone, and um. The Borg are actually not in this episode, but they actually are um, sort of insinuated, if you will. Um, so Picard is a way, I'm just gonna read what I wrote. This is easier than summarizing it. Picard is a way to conference about the Romulans, a hostile race and, and the Enterprise discovers an old spacecraft with cryogenic chambers containing three 20th century humans. The crew brings them aboard and Dr. Crusher curses them, uh, cures them. <laughs> she cures them <laughs> as they realize uh, they are several hundred years into the future and things are very different. Picard returns and takes the Enterprise to the Romulan neutral zone where there are reports of an attack on the Federation colony. The Romulans hail Picard and they report that they also had an attack on one of their vessels near the neutral zone. Each side initially suspects the other. The Federation and the Romulans have very strained diplomatic relations. The Romulans notice the attack left a technological trace. That means the attack could not have been done by the Federation, which third party could be wagging the dog to create an intergalactic conflict. The episode ends with both sides agreeing to work together to investigate the source of the attack. And this is season one finale. So the next time we encounter the Borg, we actually do encounter them. It's season two, episode 16, and it's called Q-Who. And our favorite omniscient alien entity, the mischievous Q, tries to convince Picard to let him join the crew of the Enterprise, and Picard refuses. Q thrusts the Enterprise thousands of light years into, uh, 
away into an unexplored part of the galaxy and then disappears. The nearest star base takes two years at maximum warp. In this act, Q has precipitated the Federation's first encounter with the Borg. Neither the Federation nor the Enterprise crew has the resources or skill to outmaneuver the Borg at this time. Q placed the, inter the Enterprise at risk to ingratiate himself. The Enterprise explores and dis discovers ruin similar uh, ruins similar to the ruins they saw at the end of season one. Guinan feels uneasy and she wants Picard to leave the area and head for familiar space. She tells the crew about an alien cybernetic species that destroyed her world and scattered her people across the galaxy. The Borg cannot be defeated, she warns. Crew create, Q created a situation that forces Picard to ask Q to join the crew to help the Enterprise fight the Borg. This is the first time the audience sees the Borg and this Borg is not the Borg we know in 2023. The Borg nursery and in absence of any familiar mantra such as resistance is futile, teach us that the initial conception of the Borg as an enemy differ very much from the enemy we know now. Q reappears when it looks like the Borg will defeat the Enterprise and he saves them from destruction by flinging them back to their original coordinates. Q leaves them with a warning that the Borg will pursue them now that they know of the Federation's existence. So the next time we see the Borg is in season three at the uh, towards the end, um, season three at episode 26, and it's a two-part um, series, um, two-part um, thing. Uh, it's called The Best of Both Worlds. And in part one, the uh, Enterprise responds to a distress call and discovered uh, that the colony has disappeared. So like the like, entire thing is just gone. It's like everything's gone. They suspect the Borg. Um, Admiral Henson and C Commander Shelby arrive on the Enterprise and brief the captain on the Borg. Riker is being pressured to accept command of a ship he does not want, and he doesn't want to leave. Shelby wants his job. Tension exists between them. Henson reports that another ship encountered the a cube-like vessel before um, sending a distress signal that abruptly ended. Enterprise intercepts a Borg and tries to escape there their, um, with evasive maneuvers. The Borg flush them out, um, board the Enterprise, abduct Picard, assimilate him into the collective. He becomes Locutus of Borg. The Enterprise has, has a plan, has to plan to thwart the Borg and rescue him as the Borg speed toward Earth. Only now the Borg has all the strategic knowledge that Picard possesses, so they have to strategize to outmaneuver Picard himself. Shelby and Riker have to overcome the tension between them in order to complete the mission to save Picard. And that's where season three ends. So season four begins with part two, the best of both worlds, part two. We learn about ways to outmaneuver the Borg. Riker completes his first successful mission as captain of a starship. Riker has let go of everything familiar in order to defeat Picard. The Enterprise separates itself into two sections in order to defeat the Borg. The away crew retrieve the Picard drone and returns him to the Enterprise for rehabilitation. The Borg ship hurdles toward Earth and the Enterprise cannot follow. They use Picard's connection to the collective in order to send a sleep regeneration command and the feedback loop causes the cube to explode. The audience learns about the ominous threat that the Borg possesses and they get an inkling of the trauma that Picard suffered having been taken by the Borg and had cybernetic implants into his body against his will. 
Picard suffers the after effects from his experience with the Borg being abducted and held hostage and violated and enslaved. So the next time we see the Borg is in season five, episode 23. It's called I Borg. The Enterprise recovers an injured Borg drone abandoned by the collective. They bring it to the ship, treat it, and they befriend it. They name the Borg drone Hugh. The initial plan is to implant a virus in the drone and send it back to destroy the collective. The crew has second thoughts about doing that. What are the ethics of doing this? Should they have killed the Borg and wiped out the entire race? The audience learns about Borg drone technology and the hive mind and the power of the hive mind for the individual Borg drone. The Enterprise crew decided to ask Hugh what he wants. He chooses to return to the collective because the stay would be to endanger his friends at the Enterprise. The Enterprise sends Hugh back to the Borg collective with the idea of individuality in his consciousness, hoping to effect some kind of change in the collective to weaken it as a hostile enemy threat. And, um, the next time we see the Borg is in season six, episode 26. And this is a two-part, um, another two-part thing, which startles two, two seasons. The first part is called The Descent. The Enterprise in, encounter the Borg on a stress, uh, distress call to a Starfleet outpost. The Borg seem like serious space terrorists bent on destruction at all costs. Data experiences an emotion when killing a Borg during combat. The Borg unit withdraws when it sees Data. The Borg, this Borg unit behaved differently than most Borg do. Uh, the Borg unit named Hugh, um, did the Borg unit named Hugh have some kind of effect on the collective when he was returned? Data becomes fascinated with emotion and fixated on his quest to become human and he tries to recreate scenarios to evoke another emotional response. The Enterprise receives another distress call and the crew answers it. They take a drone captive. The captive Borg drone convinces Data to leave with him and they hijack a shuttle. The Enterprise follows the shuttle through a space wormhole. The away team arrives at a location where they discover Lore, Data's evil brother, has taken over a rogue sec sect of the Borg and together the brothers announce they will destroy the Federation. And that's the end of season six. And season seven begins with part two of Descent. The away team is surrounded and taken hostage. They will be used as experimental specimens for Lore to conduct his experiments. Lore has harmed many Borg drones doing failed experiments. The crew meet Hugh and he tells them what happened after he returns to the collective. The introduction of individuality into the collective injected some kind of chaos into their main programming. It weakened the collective. Hugh is part of the group of drones that went rogue. They encountered Ro Lore, who promised to make them fully cybernetic and wants to indoctrinate them to hate all organic life forms to wage war against them, cult style. Lore dreams of a cybernetic intifada, if you will. Like all cult leaders, Lore is a liar and incapable of empathy or remorse and demands complete fealty and inflicts abuse on those he leads. We learn that Lore gave Data the emotion chip and disengaged his ethical programming and then turned Data against the Federation, convincing him that he was a slave, et cetera, et cetera, and implanting hurtful, angering thoughts. The crew find a device that can engage data's, data's ethical programming. Data is asked to conduct a procedure on Jordy that will cause him brain damage, and Jordy asks him at the last minute to check his conscience. Data stops. Lore grows suspicious and forces Data to prove his loyalty by asking him to kill Picard. Data refuses and disables Lore, who says, I love you, brother, before shutting off. Lore is to be dismantled. 
Data wants to destroy the emotion ship and Jordy convinces him to keep it until a future time uh, when he is ready. So those are the episodes. And um, so the first theme is uh, that we're going to talk about is um, balancing individually individuality versus hive mind. So my summary was a conversation about I versus we. Um, Ayn Rand explored explored this topic in her 1938 book. I don't know if you either of you read that book. It's called Anthem. Um, and it's basically about where like individuality is legal. And if you say the word I, you were burned at the stake. Hmm. Uh, she wrote she wrote that um, in as her response to um, like the uh, Bolshevik Revolution and 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 that mm -hmm. it's in the public domain. It's actually it's like a very short book. Anyway, um, Roddenberry and Hurley explore explore I versus we with the Borg. Uh, was Hughes' existence improved by learning about individuality and by learning that his culture did not allow for such a thing? What does that mean even? We are social, social creatures and also individuals who need both I and we. How do we balance individuality versus the hive mind? And what does the Star Trek Next Generation board canon tell us about how to answer this question and address the issue of individuality, i.e. the good of the one versus many for ourselves in our lives? Okay. No? So... Uh, uh, can I uh, can I kick off a little bit? Sure. Yes. Please do. I, I, I think one of the things I liked um, uh, in this selection of episodes that you gave is that you have kind of an arc um, in 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 terms of this issue. You sort of start out and you meet the Borg, and the first and your first impression is you know they're kind of you know they don't really know that anybody else exists they kind of exist within this within this hive and they have no and they have no individuality and it's kind of cold and, and it's kind of cold and unpleasant and um and then you meet and then you meet Hugh right and Hugh gives you this kind of the warm fuzzy side of the hive mind right where he says you know where he says he, he turns to Jordy at one point and says you know when when you sleep at night you know, you don't have you don't have all those voices in your head. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have you don't have that connection to other that connection to other people. And you get the sense that he and he's lonely. Mm -hmm. right? And there's and there's and, and in that group mind, there's something very um, there's something very kind of warm and, and comforting. And then the third the third kind of movement in that is where. Where individuality infects the hive and they don't know exactly what to do with it right mm -hmm. it becomes you know so they experience individuality and the pain of it right because because the the hive mind gives you purpose right you know there's no question of purpose because because your presence in the hive is your purpose the mm -hmm. the purpose of the hive is your purpose and now all of a sudden you have to find your purpose and you know what happens is that Lore steps in. I mean, he he th that whole story with the two brothers always feels to me kind of like telenovela. You know? Yes, like yeah. One of those kind of it's one of those. You know, all of a sudden the 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 evil twin shows up. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's go with that, and and say, well, no, you know, individuality is really is really tough to manage because you do have to find you do you do have to find your own purpose. And there are always people, there's always people in the world 
you know, cult leaders are never in short supply, um, whether they, you know, whether they're political cult leaders, religious cult leaders, um, you know, are never in short supply to provide you with purpose, you know, and very often self-serving and evil. Yes, false purpose. And that's really a good point because like individuality is kind of like, like we are, someone used to tell me a lot, um, we are all, we're, we're really alone, Roxanne, from the time you're born, you live your life and you die by yourself. You're born alone and you die alone. You're just alone. Like, so to be yourself and to be an individual is really like to not belong to anything except to belong to you. Right. And so like, we are individuals first before anything else. And so maybe that's a bit hard because then like, you don't belong really to anything except yourself. I mean, that's what it is to be an individual. And that's what we struggle with. Like, that's basically what you just said, like, it's powerful. Like even now look with the way the world is like to just be yourself and be like, you know, no, I don't agree with you. And everyone else is over there. It's really like most, most people, most people can't do it. And so like, now I think we're like in this, we sort of are in this, in this era where we are like living that struggle of like, it is painful to have your own purpose, but also to hook into like the common purpose of like everyone around you. It's like, like in Canada, we're having that thing where everyone's got their own identity or, you know, whatever, but then there's like a common one too. Right. So like, yes, we do need to be I, but we also need to be, we, like, and I don't know that those things are like incompatible. Like I think in order for, for there to be like a really powerful, we don't, we need a bunch of eyes that are really like, you well, know? Well, y- y- yes, yes, maybe. I mean, you know, listen, I mean, Western culture is kind of built on this idea, you know, I mean, this idea of individuality, you know, our history is the history of, you know, of great men and great women and great, you know, that, that's how, that's how we see the world. It's not true in every other place. I remember um, an Indian friend of mine, um, so I, I went to visit, so I lived in India for a few years. Mm-hmm. And um, what I noticed in his house is that every time we moved from one room to another, everybody in the house moved to the room. Okay, so mm-hmm. imagine like there are basically three rooms and he and I would move into one room and then everybody would follow us. Mm-hmm. And then we would move to another room and everybody would follow us. And it was always that every single person in the house was always in the same room. And uh, I once asked him about that. And he said, he said, yeah, that was the thing that freaked me out in America. He says, when he came to visit America, it was so weird. Everybody would sit in their own room. He says, my dream is to have everybody I love in one room. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and then he said, and then he said to me, he said, he says, you're an individual. I'm a individual. Oh, that's and, neat. Yeah. And, and I think that, and I think that, you know, we are, we are both of those things and we're always negotiating that. Mm-hmm. I think that's, what's nice about the Borg. I mean, the Borg, you know, I one of the, one of the thing I like about this this whole Borg section as it continues, you know that that Star Trek obsession f- from the first series, you know, with what it means to be human, you know, mm-hmm. and and part of the and and part of it is 
even the machines are wondering, you know, even the machines are wondering, you know, about their individuality and about, you know, what it means to be part of the collective. But yeah, I mean, you do have to have an eye to be a we, but there has to be, there has to be some kind of, if there's too much I, then there's a we. Well, and that's like the whole thing with the cult leader and like every, like we don't have to talk about, you know, any of the current cults that are affecting the world right now. We can right. go back to history and talk about, you know, like right. uh, what's his name for the the J- J- Jonestown thing. Okay, that's like right. a good thing. That's enough in the in the past. Far um, back, yeah. and you know, um, actually, my dad comes from Guyana, so I'm that's one of my pet things I like to talk about is Jonestown because that's okay. the only that's the only that's the only thing that <laughs> anyone knows my dad's country for. Anyway, so like that guy was like a people certain somebody like that is like like okay that's like way over individual like now right. your individuality and your like identity or whatever we're gonna call it is it's now you're like a tyrant like <laughs> you know right like right but know. the tyrant but the tyrant you know t- these tyrants have an amazing ability to provide people with uh with a sense of purpose and with a we i mean you know comes with paranoia paranoia is a great common you know Having enemies and paranoia, those are all ways of keeping people, you know, of, of kind of keeping people in in line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and compared to the Borg, I mean, the the Borg mission, you know, at, at its outset, right, which mm-hmm. is to be, a, you know, to assimilate um, is kind of benign. It seems a kind of almost, um, I've been spending a lot of time lately um in Twitter spaces, listening to um, lots of people in the intelligence community and with military um, experience and stuff. And their experience, especially the military guys, their experience is very much like that. Like you are assimilated. Resistance is not a thing. You are part of a greater whole. Everything works together. You are a part of a thing, right? Like that's very effective. It's very like, it's it's very effective and it seems it seems kind of you know attractive and stuff yeah but you know what's interesting about military is their most specialized effective forces are made up of individuals who don't fit in that this is true yeah that's interesting really true so it's there again you know it's like a whole like levels of because there are that there are those people that are like that the rangers and the you know the snipers and the you know people like that you know these guys who are i said i'm going to talk about i said i wasn't going to talk about but i can't help you know the dudes in the tunnels making these decisions about things and stuff like that right like you need to be an individual for that but you also do need to be like part of the hive mind like you can't do those things if you're like off there being like, yeah, I know the commander said of this, but I just feel like I'm going to do this, you know, like, like, like it is like you're constantly negotiating it. Like, like, so sometimes it's almost like I almost have felt like, like to be a Borg, like they don't know, like they don't have like an eye thing. They don't have anything. They don't care. <laughs> like sometimes like in a weird, dark way, I almost am like, like that would be like really attractive to not to not even care to just be like okay i'm just doing this i have this objective and i'm just doing it and just keep going you know that's probably the attraction of the hive is is to take the pressure off the, the worries away and and uh you know I, I will take over and 
and uh, you just have to wake up and fall. <laughs> and then nobody is responsible, right? That's mm -hmm. that's like everybody, the hive mind says, and then nobody is responsible. And then maybe that's part of like the attraction of being belonging to a group like that, because then like you don't, you're not like, nobody is really responsible because collective is, mm -hmm. what does that even mean? Yeah. Uh, and you see this in ultra organized religions they're, mm -hmm. they're almost like a hive <laughs> you know they 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 well they are a hive you know they 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 the the people go there they, they go to um, the this temple or brick building to take away their troubles to have somebody else take care of everything it's funny you know i you know i'm a i'm in the orthodox community and somebody once asked me um, about in the Hasidic community in New York, if you go to a Hasidic community, nobody ever says hello to you or acknowledges your presence. You know, it, it, you could you could be so they're walking down the street, see all these guys dressed in black and whatever and beards, and you walk by if you don't look like them, and you know you smile or you say hello or whatever, and literally they don't they don't respond to you at all. And somebody once asked me, what is this about? And I said, well, the closest I can tell you is it's like the Borg. <laughs> it's like the Borg. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're on the Borg ship and when you're on the Borg ship and you're not presenting any threat, you're also of no interest. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're not you're not you're not of interest and you're not a threat. And so basically you're ignored. You're just not it's not present because you're not part of the hive, you know, and that. And and the business of the hive is being is being taken care of, and it's really very much very very much like that. And I think you're right that the, it does kind of it does you know I, I'm a member of a hive myself. Mm -hmm. It relieves stress. Um, it also creates a kind of stress. I mean, I think mm -hmm. you know because because of our individuality, right? That's the problem. Is once you have individuality, right? Then mm -hmm. it creates all sorts of stress because you're constantly negotiating between the needs of between the needs of the group. You know, and you know, the needs of the group, the needs of the individual, and you can't, and you can't escape that. And that's, of course, what happens to those poor Borg. You know, as soon mm -hmm. as they discover their individuality, and you know, the the solution, the solution is to find, you know, some is to become, in their case, to become kind of slaves to the, you know, to the ego of the cult leader. This um, sort of. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you because I just had a thought. This sort of reminds me of like the Bible story of, you know, like the knowledge of good and evil and mm -hmm. how like, you know, in the garden, everything was fabulous and you, they were like, okay, there's this tree and don't touch that tree. <laughs> and then they like touch the tree and they eat the whatever. And then all of a sudden now they have knowledge of good and evil and now everything's different. And now they're not, you know, as peaceful, you know, as peaceful and, you know, they are, have fallen into a certain kind of bondage because now they know things that they, they weren't meant to know maybe that's not quite the same but it sort of like reminds me of the fact that sometimes like when you know something you know <laughs> maybe well, like... and, and the first two products right of that of that union right are Cain and Abel and one of them kills the other right so you know yes with, with that knowledge of individuality you know comes you know comes comes violence and then you have the Tower of Babel which is also the same theme, right? 
that everybody speaks everybody speaks the same language and they're all of one mind and it looks great i mean if you read the text mm-hmm. it looks great it's like wow this is amazing everybody is like everybody's together it's wonderful and then of course it becomes you know the common purpose seems strange and and the 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 jewish texts say all sorts of weird things like they started you know they started when when a when a worker would fall they would cry for the bricks but not for the worker you know they started you know they're they're kind of the the mentality they started they started to kind of uh care more about the project and not about and not about each other Mm. you know so that same theme and then god what does god do in that story god says no 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 i'm going to separate you i'm going to make it so you speak different languages that you can't do this again so that you can't have this hive mind as humanity again because it's too dangerous Mm -hmm. so you don't become the borg and I, like this whole thing of, you know, what you said about like you are um, how you described like walking through like, you know, the community or like somebody who's like walking through a Borg thing and they're not recognized. It's kind of like it's very much like that. And it's really weird because like, you know, I grew up a Catholic. My dad was a convert, whatever. And, you know, everything it was fine. Everything was fine. But, you know, at some point, like you realize that it's a hive. And it exists for itself. And so, you know, there's like been stories about the Catholic, you know, church and stuff. And, you know, probably everybody's heard of, you know, the cases related to the keepers, you know, and that whole thing. Right. Okay. So like, you know, that story, you know, that guy, you know, the guy at the whole center of it was like, well, I'm doing this for the church. Right. Like I'm doing it for the hive mind. I'm, and then right. it becomes, oh, right. suddenly then it's like, oh, but I'm doing it for God. <laughs> like we got right. from like that, right? So like that. And then, you know, and then like, I, I uh, had a little bit of an experience in the Muslim world. I tried that out. And what I found it really weird. It, it, it is exactly as you described, like, trying to say hi to people this is metaphorical okay trying to say hi to people like trying to engage people in a real world issue and they're like it's like you're talking another language or something they're absolutely uninterested if it doesn't like there is a group of of people who like serve the hive so much that they absolutely don't care about anything if it like it's not hive related. Like it's really, it's right. fascinating to me. Like, like, like I used to be upset about it, but now it's just, it's fascinating because like, it's like this, it's like this Borg thing where you go, they go onto the Borg ship and the Borg are like doing their things. And they're it's like, you're not a threat. They don't care about you. You're not relevant to them. You don't have anything they want. They can't, they can't mine you for anything. So if they're right. not interested, right. Right. Which is, which is really, I mean, that, that thing of kind of mining looking looking at looking at other human beings for what you can get out of them i mean that's also like a i mean that's that's basically sort of american you know the we're not american i guess it's sort of western consumer society mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what can i what can i you know what can i get out out of you how can you be you know recycled mm-hmm. um you know, how can it be properly recycled? How can I make out of you what it is I need to make out of you? I mean, it's 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 vicious. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I think 
the the Picard thing um, gives you is like an insight into how vicious this is. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so violated, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to, to put implants in someone's body and to kind of transform them in this way is just it's just it's just horrific, mm-hmm. you know. But from their perspective, they're doing you a big favor, exactly. Right? They're making exactly. you bigger, stronger. They're giving you they're giving you a, a purpose within the hive. They're doing they they're doing they feel like they're they're being very generous to you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, actually, what these implants are basically a physical representation of doctrine. Right. Right. They're basically right. They're like you know you're wearing. Uh, yeah. 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 It's like it's like uh, it's like putting the mind on your outside, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's really it, it it's also interesting how um, how it changes that kind of you know that shift in lore when lore kind of shifts them to say you know okay look you know really what you want to be is completely you know non biological mm-hmm. you know that fantasy which of course is like I mean. It's it's interesting because I think now a few years later, with AI being what it is and everything else, that the whole conversation I think is very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole the whole the whole thinking about about um, robotics and and artificial intelligence probably is you know it feels much more it feels much more urgent. Now than yes, it, it felt it felt much more science fictiony then, and it feels less science fictiony now yes yeah, yeah. Well, well the thing is we have a, a certain crowd of people now like uh, especially in the gaming community who are actually looking forward to the cybernetic implants yeah you know I... and uh, so this is the interesting thing and then there are, there are some um films and stuff that portray this idea of a, of a dystopian future where People all full of cybernetic implants and mm-hmm. enhancements and uh, stuff like this. And but the interesting thing is, is um, they come off as individuals and not as Borg, right? You know, and that's the cyberpunk right I- I- ideal. Um, but the, the, the but the but uh, I think I think the big fear is is if we end up in a reality where we have these cybernetic implants and there's a controlling force whether it's ai or whether it's our governments or our religions and uh, they turn us into a hive <laughs> so um, maybe we become the borg <laughs> yeah well i mean i mean I think we're always yeah. i think we're always on the edge of being the borg i mean mm-hmm. i think i think that's kind of part of the i think that's part of the attraction of the story is like we're always kind of you know i mean how many people you know the borg are course act robotically right mm-hmm. you know they get up in the morning they they, they do sleep right that they, they do they do sleep so they get up after their period of uh, their period of rest and they kind of walk around they do you know they do the things that they have to they do the things that they have to do and a, a lot of people are living that way now i mean how many people are actually paying much attention to what they're doing they're doing because this is you know what this was expected of them and every day they do the same thing and they go to starbucks and they get the same coffee that they had yesterday and they mm-hmm. you know robotic living is part of 
you know, robotic living is part of, uh, you don't need cybernetics to do that. I mean, we can do that, you know, as you know, with our biology. Well, uh, and nobody wants to be unplugged. So now, <laughs> sorry, but I'm going to yeah. go there. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody wants to be in the matrix. Nobody yeah. actually wants to be unplugged from the matrix, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we all know what that's like living in the, what is it? The Zion, what they actually call, they, they call themselves Zion, didn't they? The, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Zion, yeah. It's like, you yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, people, you know, I mean, that's, and that's, you know, the technology has certainly, certainly helped with that. I mean, I know people who walk around, you know, wearing watches, you know, that monitor their, you know, their heart rate and everything else. And it's uh, they're on 24 hour, you know, observation, you know, by, by AI, mm -hmm. you know, watching their, watching their, their, their life science. And, and this is, you know, it's become, that's become reality. And of course we're plugged in all the time. I'm lucky not to be plugged in for one day a week, mm -hmm. which is because it keeps my sanity just to keep get away from this thing. But um, yeah, I think that that's, you know, but there is, you know, you know, there's a kind of like, I guess one of the things I think that's scary about the hive mind is that there's no, that there's no responsibility or culpability. Yeah, you know, I think it's the Nuremberg defense. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of like, well, just doing what the high following orders. That's right. what my that's what yeah. the rules said. Or right, and know, the Catholic whatever. and the Catholic Church. You know, like everybody said that, right? I mean, the horrible, horrible things protecting the church, people being you know moved from place to place. It's, whatever you know else. what what really fascinates me, and just even now, like just generally speaking about religious like religious communities people can watch terrible terrible things happen to individuals like we're not even talking about like like you know watching like a group of people we're talking about on an individual level in a community where you know an example would be like you know in the 60s there was no rights for women and there was no like right. no fault divorce if you were being abused you were screwed basically as a female right. especially if you lived in a religious community everyone just right. thought you should die there okay right. so you know my mom was like one of those one of those women who was like you know it was devoutly catholic and every the whole community knew what was happening and everyone like sometimes she was like people were watching her getting beatings and no one said a thing and everyone was trotting around like that and then you know in the end you know she finally did leave and she like you know it was a very dramatic story but then afterwards everybody's like people just really like comfort themselves with their hive mindness to like protect themselves from like having to be responsible for seeing things happen and not being able to do anything because of like, oh, well, I possibly can do any, you know what I mean? Like, it's just really weird how we have this world where, okay, I belong to this religious hive. But then when you see like a really terrible, terrible things happen, you somehow like justify that, oh, it's okay. I don't have to keep like, I, you know what I mean? You know, like, it really is like, it. this hive thing is, is really like, sometimes it can really be like, 
like a, a destructive force. Like it could be really... like a giant cube, <laughs> like, like a giant cube hurtling through space, getting ready to, to, see, to, to, so I think that's to destroy that... anything comes across like that. <laughs> yeah. I think this is where the power and the danger of the individual come in, because we're the conscience, we're the we're the thing that stands up and says, but you know, <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> exactly. But then how do you do that in a in a place where like in that community where I'm talking about, you know, like there was like like there is not even that social skill to have a conscience, which is really weird because we're talking about people who like went to confession and went to all did all these things. There's like a whole everything set up, right? And these, you know, whatever, right? But then like to have something like oh, some to be able to have the power of individuation to say, hey, wait, this is wrong. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, oh, yeah. but I, I don't think there's anything in the catechism that can teach you, that can teach you how to have a conscience. I mean, a, a, a conscience is something that, you know, that you develop by using it. Right. And if people are never given any choices, right. If you, if you're never given any choices, then you never learn how to use your, your, your conscience. Exactly. And, you know, like in, just to go back to the, the you know, data, right? Mm -hmm. I I think that the you know the metaphor there of kind of like his conscience getting switched off. I mean, that's exactly mm -hmm. what happens. Exactly. I mean, exactly. People's the, people's conscience gets switched off, and people who otherwise you people who you know, you know, I've had this experience. People who are who have good consciences, who are really you know, people with healthy values, whatever, become part of a group. And all of a sudden that just kind of switches off because, yes. because the assumption is that the hive mind knows better than I do. You know, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's a perfect description of that, that the hive mind knows better than I do. That's like a thing that we're seeing that, you know, and I don't know, like necessarily if that's the case, if the hive mind always knows better and a yes, I do agree. I've seen a lot of people, like, especially these past, you know, two months or so, or 80 days or whatever it's been, yeah. I, people that I thought were really had values and really were solid human beings. I watched, I watched some people I really, really respected. Absolutely, completely discard their conscience because the hive mind knew better. And I just find that I'm not even upset about it. I'm just absolutely fascinated which i reason reason why i want to like so do this thing because this whole thing with the five mind and how like it totally like it's like we're constantly negotiating it and sometimes we are afraid like you have this thing in your head it's like this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong but then you've got this other thing you know your cybernetic implant or your dogma you know chip or whatever being like no it's fine it's fine it's fine and you're like constantly like you know, it's like there's a war or something. And it's like, it fascinates me. I just, I don't know. Yeah. I think the interesting thing historically is, is, is the person who listens to their conscience and, and, and eventually speaks out is taking an immense risk in, in this hive. And uh, some people get burned to the stake for this. Some people get thrown out of their communities. Um, at the best, you, you might, you might be, um, given a cave in the in the hills and treated like some sort of guru and but nobody really wants to talk to you <laughs> you know um today 
we have, have this ability to find over individuals. And, and so we've got a case today where it used to be a private club kind of thing. I mean, the, I, I mean uh, I'll go to Offham's uh, Star Trek and go into Tolkien for a second. And Tolkien, he had that um, book club where they would, these professors and stuff would, would meet. And uh, and he had Lewis there, the, the guy who, who wrote the, the, the Witch, the Lion. Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, mm. yeah. Yeah, they hated each other. Right. <laughs> uh, right. But, 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 they would meet <laughs> at this pub and they would have amazing discussions and uh, and it was a club of individuals and and there were little clubs around like this uh, but there was no collective consciousness of all these individuals and uh, so the big difference is this, uh, the social media which everyone sees as good and bad this is one of the good things about it, it's, uh, it allows individuals to say hey i'm not alone anymore those other people help me it's hard they're hard to find but here and here we are you know mm -hmm. in, individuals sitting here and talking about something and you can you know go against the hive you know narrative or the hive mind or the hive whatever mm -hmm. and say your thing and you know like yeah. it's getting harder yeah. to take us and burn us at the stake yeah, yeah. Well, although social media is complicated because of the algorithms yeah because what, it, what it tends to do is you know because their job is really to sell you stuff right that's mm -hmm. their their yeah. job is to sell you stuff so what they want to do is they want they want to make you nice and comfy right so that you're gonna make you nice and comfy so that you're gonna buy their stuff or so angry right so they're, so they're constantly putting you you know kind of in environments they're gonna they're gonna put you into you know into echo chambers as much mm -hmm. as they possibly can. So you have to, I mean it's it's a it's a strange, it's a strange thing. Um, it's again we're back to the same theme that we started with, which is I versus we, because right. you have to be aware of the fact that you are being influenced by a program or whatever mm -hmm. a code you know that's that that you know says okay like you know give this person mm -hmm. give people more of what they like or want and you have right. to be aware of that and you have to go and defeat that and you have to go and right. look for things that are different and you have to teach it you know what you want right and realize like you're the you're the like <laughs> you're in control this is right. my computer and i turned it on like this fucking excuse me this thing doesn't doesn't run me right, I mean, right. you know right. Well, and that's yes, what, and, yes, and no. And that, and that, and that, well, that was what was made made the Matrix so amazing. When I first watched the Matrix, I had I had no I, I never saw it at the cinema. I know never talked to anyone about it, so I just vented it and I started watching it. And the whole idea of the the blue pill and the red pill, and then suddenly getting waking up as this battery, and it, it was wow. <laughs> You know, you actually give. You actually saw the a person have that choice. You know, you want to stay with that nice, comfy hive, or you want to actually. Yeah. I, 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 I wake up. Wake up and know? I actually really have always thought that that whole process that Neil goes through, where he takes that pill, and then he wakes up in the thing, and he has to like go through the whole like breaking free and becoming born and all that stuff. I really always have thought that that's like really a powerful metaphor of becoming yourself like you know like like okay it's also like being born being born is like traumatic as hell 
and all of that stuff. But like, it is like about like being like an individual, like you finding yourself and like, you are ultimately, like I said, someone told me this years ago and it's true. We're ultimately alone in everything we do. Like, you know, we have spouses and friends and we're here together right now, but each of us isn't all alone in our head, you know, like Neo being born, you know, and going through the thing and trying to find his way and then having all of those things taken off and whatever, right? It's like that process of being removed from the matrix or, you know, being removed from the machine thing, like that's like a metaphor for like becoming a person and like learning how to like, you know stand up and use your muscles and things like that well then that's like you said if you never make choices or if you never like you don't have to decide things or whatever if you never use your conscience then like you don't you don't have one right if everything's always decided for you and the rules are you know whatever and you just are plugged in right you know then now we're always back to that it doesn't matter what we talk about we talked about you know, talked about the matrix and we talked about Tolkien. <laughs> we are always still back at the same I versus we. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that that's, I mean, that's kind of what it means to part of what it means to be a human being. You're always kind of negotiating that. I mean, whether it's with your, whether it's with your family, with your community, with your, you know, we're, we're social beings. We're born, you know, we're, we're born dependent, Right. You know, we're we're the most of of all animals. I think we're one of the most uh, born, one of the most dependent. You know, when lizards are born, you know, they're ready to go. You mm. know, like a lizard is born, it's you know, it's it's ready to go and run off and do its lizard things. And we're not like that at all. We require you know years and years of care, and um, and so we are we are social. We're we are social animals by you know definition. We have to mm-hmm. you know, dependent. Um, and then negotiating that dependence. I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like, you know, I, I used to teach high schoolers, adolescents, you know, mm-hmm. and like, and so you go through, you know, at, at two years old, you try to fit, you know, you're in, at two years old, there's a big negotiation between, between I and we, right. Mm-hmm. When kids start going, you know, kids start learn the word no, mm-hmm. and they learn the word mine. Mm-hmm. Right, they go crazy with that. Mine, 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 mine. No, no, no. That's mm-hmm. two, and then they hit adolescence, right? And then it's kind of like, well, I'm not you. You're not me. You can't tell me. You're not the boss of me. And then, then there's then there's middle age, and it happens again. Um, I think I think that's what kind of like a mid middle age crisis is to some extent. Is you know now I've been part of the hive for long enough, and like you know. You know, I have my individuality starts exploding. I've had about ten of those uh, crises <laughs> in my in my middle age. I think it's like one continuous crisis. Possibly, um, yeah, it could be. <laughs> but uh, you know that, and that's you know, and you and that red pill, blue pill thing. I think that's basically that's basically the metaphor for for life. I mean, you know. I, uh, I, I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, okay, is it a red pill day or a blue pill day? You know, do I really want to know or do I, you know, do I want to live in the, do I want to live in the matrix? And then uh, like, and then the ultimate thing is, you know, like back to Hugh um, and when, you know, they captured Hugh and they had him in that thing. And then he was like, he was looking, remember he was seeking. And right. then Dr. Crusher was like, he's lonely. Right. Like, like, to be an individual is lonely 
because yes. you are alone and you are yourself and you don't have anything to belong to. And that yep. is like part of it. And so you do want to belong. Uh, what, what, Actually, uh, this is interesting. There's actually a powerful goodness in that. And that is when you reach old age. Mm-hmm. Because you're then, by the, by the time you reach an old age, you're, you're rejected by the hive. You're no longer useful to the hive. So you're sort of cast out. Now, as an individual who's been coping with loneliness, you're actually kind of an armature. You, but for the people who are not used to that sort of individual loneliness, um, being old is scary. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. Uh, they're not no longer part of the hive. Um, they are desperate. They're, they're dealing with all this loneliness, and it's terrible. It's destroying. People who are individual, like... You know, they can sit sit in that room and read a book and <laughs> they're, they're quite content. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, I'm lucky that I live in a hive where being old is a very is, is like a is is like a, a an advantage. Like, you know, I'm I'm 63 and I'm just kind of hitting my prime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the because our, our hive, you know, if you if you look at pictures, you know, if you go look at pictures of rabbis. Right. You know, all the famous ones are like 90, <laughs> 80, you know, that's so it kind of become it's, it's kind of like old age is very is very highly prized and older people are kind of revered. And so having a white beard and everything else, you're not thrown out of a hive on the, con- on the yeah. contrary, you're kind of like you, you sort of, sort of pulled into the center of it in some mm-hmm. respects, which yeah, is nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's nice. like that's in India in some ways as well, you know, yes, like, you have a big, long be- white beard. Yeah. You know, People wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. That's very. It's very true. And and older people in general in India, you know, uh, I remember you know walking into people's house and you know, walk in, touch the grandparents, uh, touch the grandparents' feet, and it was like very, uh, you know. Here, I mean, definitely in definitely in most of the West, you know, when you hit a certain age, you are kicked out of the hive. And it's really mm-hmm. sad because you sort of look and you see this, you know, kind of yeah. older people really had a lot. And it's very pronounced in North America because yeah. there's um there's less emphasis on the family, yeah. movement, which in Europe includes the grandparents. Yeah. Uh, but when you come to North America, it's like, oh, the grandparents are getting old. We need to put them in a home. You know? Right. And, right. and uh, yeah, we were, we were really throwing away this... This, yeah. yeah, one uh, of the big yeah. businesses here in in uh, in this in this area are adult daycare facilities. Mm-hmm. Where you basically, it's it's really bizarre. The, where old people are kind of sent to a place to hang out with each other, you know. And on the one hand, it's nice because it's, on one hand, it's nice because at least they have a community of people to be around. On the other hand, it's, of course, it's weird and institutional and. You know, ideally, we should, you know, uh, the, the beauty, at least when I was growing up, the beauty of my grandparents was that they were always surrounded by people of other ages, mm-hmm. you know, that they were with mm-hmm. their grandchildren with my and with my aunts and uncles. And it was kind of more organic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, that's how my upbringing was also very much. And that's how we were taught how to negotiate um, like the I versus we because we were like in a multi-generational hive. So my grandparents were 
Uh, my parents were already in their 30s and they'd lived quite a life by the time I came along. So my I didn't really know my grandparents, but we did have like a very big extended family. My mom had a lot of siblings and, you know, they had kids and, you know, so there were cousins and all, you know, whatever. Right. So like, it wasn't just like all, you know, okay, everyone of the same hangout, like there was like, you know, five-year-olds and 12-year-olds and like, right. you know, 20-year-olds and like 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds. And, you know, there were some like, you know, elderly and then there were like, you know, clerics and priests because my mom was like tight in the community. And like, there were like, you know, nuns from like the monastery and there were like people that lived in communal things and there were people that did missionary work. And oh, by the way, not everybody that goes to Africa to do missionary work is a colonizer. Like, you know, you learn some things when you are a part of that community yeah. where like, and I remember like, you know, the people like the war in Ireland. Okay. <laughs> like, I remember the yeah. war in Ireland and Catholics coming and like, you know, the community getting together and being like, okay, this family's coming. Let's get the, you know, and like, that's what we did. That's what people did. You helped people. You helped people who came from like the communist countries who came with nothing and stuff. That's what we did. Like, you know, that's like how I grew up, you know, learning about that's how you negotiate yourself that's how you learn to be that's how you learn to have a conscience you learn how to like have values and you learn how to is this a blue pill day or a red pill day or should i hive or should i be an individual and can i think for myself and stuff like that you know yeah yeah so i don't know no, I, I think, think it, it, people have to learn how to do that i mean it's not like it's it's not and i think that's also partial that's also pretty clear i think in these episodes you know that it's not that nobody knows how to do this <laughs> exactly and, and i really think the danger of now especially in north america is the fact that the hive mind like is sort of becoming like more like you know it's becoming it's it's becoming more of a force that people are being browbeaten with well mm -hmm. you know this is like what the hive mind says or you know like you know the social justice thing or whatever and if you like speak out against you know whatever you're like canceled and stuff like that you know so like i think this is like now like a really important like topic of the borg because like now it sort of almost feels like you know like it's being said differently but you know you will be assimilated resistance is futile and you know we're gonna take your i can't remember the exact words but you know we're going to take all your distinctiveness we'll take everything and it's going to service us and stuff like that you know sometimes there are forces in this world right now in this society right now that feel like that <laughs> I feel like it just wants yeah. to take everything and so like i think that's sort of why, like, I wanted, you know, when we were doing that duties of heart thing that one day and you were like, oh, I have lots of ideas about Star Trek. Mm -hmm. like, cool, let's do it. Because, like, I just think, you know, it's kind of important, you know, because people do need to be reminded, like, you can be an individual, but you can be a part of the group. And why should we, like, I feel like we're almost being told we have to choose. You can right. be I or you can be we, but you can't be both. And like, I think that we can, like, I can be a part of a we and still be say as an I, oh, okay. I disagree with this thing that the we is doing. Like, I don't see right. why that's, you know, I think that maybe we don't know that we have the permission to do that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And resistance is never futile. No, it's not. Mm. <laughs> that's a thing that they say to demoralize us and make us not want to do it. Well, what's interesting, because I mean, we, I mean, we have these big 
groups now, like the, the ultra white, right, the uh, the ultra left, and and they've sort of crept in towards the closer towards the middle than than they ever ever have in history, rather, and uh, and they are so insistent on you have to if you don't belong to us then you're ostracized yeah and uh, and uh, these are t- t- these are tell they are the borg <laughs> and they're coming from both sides uh, and uh, and i i am so against cancel culture i i don't believe canceling yeah. people out i believe if you disagree with somebody you have to communicate with them and and it's a, it's a teaching opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. um, and these people don't want that. <laughs> they absolutely don't want people to learn. They have to have people either belong with our little group or, or you don't exist. <laughs> yeah, like it's a matter of negotiating, you know, like I don't know if we like forgot that skill. <laughs> like, because what were, you just meant, what you just described is like negotiating. Like, you know, when somebody has a disagreeable thought, like you don't, you know, McCarthy them and cancel them, right? You like ask questions because maybe, you know, maybe there's something to be salvaged there. I mean, always there is, you know, 90% of the time there is. Well, I think if history ever teaches us anything, any times to completely suppress anything ultimately fails. Well, the darkness you suppress grows. Mm -hmm. Right. If you yeah. ignore any darkness that you grow, it is just going to become more menacing. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, you'll, you'll you know you'll be assimilated, and and resistance is futile. You know, is it's never really a very good plan. I I, I keep thinking of Afghanistan. You know, America went to Afghanistan with you know, you will be assimilated you're going to be a democracy you're going to be a western democracy you're going to be part of the council of nations and 20 years later the taliban came back you know came back came back to power and said you know and said i'm sorry but resistance is futile and we are actually not going to be assimilated and you know that's and, sorry go ahead yeah yeah i mean and, and whatever you think of that i mean it, it's it's it just never seems to work well and that's really interesting because that just is part of the whole theme about that region of the world where people with the best intentions who thought okay so i'll just back it up a little bit after the october the 7th thing ben shapiro okay he's insufferable but my anyway. former student oh, okay so he's a very clever boy okay he was, he's very clever he was a very clever boy that and he, and he yes, said when he came out of sabbath difficult. he said not everyone thinks like you do not everyone thinks like you stop assuming that everyone is like you (laughs) and that hit me over the head because that is the case when we deal with society in that part of the world you can't go into a place and say to people you will have a national identity you are gonna be freedom loving and you're gonna have democracy and you're gonna vote. Like you can't, because yeah. that's not who they are. That's not how would how like you said, how are they gonna exercise conscience? How are they gonna have any of those things that you need 
in order to have a society where people like you know like look at israel you know they set up a whole society they set up a court system they set up institutions and shit okay so like but you have to have like a social foundation of people who are equipped to do that so i don't know if that society socially equipped to be retrofitted to become a western nation like like we want to make that part of the world that way and yeah, well, so it hasn't worked very well you know no. I mean? well i think no. i think this is one of the failures of the U of the the u.s as a superpower is their idea of, de of liberal democracy and putting it onto other cultures since world war ii i think has never succeeded once well, um, and, no, <laughs> and, and you know the main, no. the main, the main thing that motivates a lot of people in that part of cultures of the world is hating the British. <laughs> it's being anti-Western that motivates them the most. Well, there's Speaking something, out? but not Canadians. <laughs> oh God! Okay, <laughs> she's still in the money, right? I mean. So or he's, he's um justin. yeah I, yeah god bless justin anyway right uh, <laughs> always always yeah. no but this idea of like being able to kind of like I, I once somebody once made the mistake of coming to me for marriage counseling don't ever do that i'm not the person coming to for that but they asked me and i said okay i would talk to them and in the middle of an argument the guy turned to the woman and he said you know what's wrong with you you're not me <laughs> that was, that was, that was, and, and and the guy was not being ironic you know he wasn't being ironic he was being he was being as real as he could be because it was like that was actually the problem i said okay finally we've identified the problem <laughs> she is not you and because she's not you she doesn't think like you she doesn't see the world like you do and that you know, and being able to deal with that is is really a major. That's that's a major part of being a human being. Um, I think that, watching your parents negotiate that. Now right. that you've mentioned that, if you have been a person who was lucky enough to watch your parents negotiate that reasonably successfully, then you probably have a really good foundation for like how to do that. You know. Yeah. Like, and that's not easy to do that. Like, you know, to like be the parents and like do it and not, you know, yeah. but yeah. I was lucky to grow up in a, in a kind of big extended Jewish family where whenever there was a, a problem in the family, um, it would be like bounced around for two or three days. You know, first they would call, first they would call my grandmother and my grandmother would kind of process it. And she would then talk to my uncles who would talk to my aunts, who would then talk to each other, who would then, you know, and event and it would kind of like go around and it would kind of go around for a while until it finally came back to my grandmother. And my grandmother and my grandfather would kind of come up with some sort of compromise position based on everything that they had heard. Um and it worked pretty and it worked pretty well. I mean it 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 worked pretty well, kind of like the, the 
everybody in the hive got to, you know, and it was gen generally compassionate. Maybe that was also because my, my, my grandmother was like ex extraordinarily kind. Um, so the kind of the bottom line was usually kindness. So that was good, mm. which was not true for all of my aunts and uncles. I had some who were more harsh than others, but it would all get kind of smoothed and mellowed out by my grandmother. But the the, the, the checks and balances worked, you know, pretty well, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, I, I thought was I thought it was I thought it was nice in Star Trek. Um, how the decision was made about Hugh, um, mm. that was actually that was actually a really good uh, it was actually a really good example of good decision making. Yes. You know, you had Guinan who had this kind of intuitive, like, okay, this is, you know, this is a big problem and you don't realize what you're getting into. He took that into account. He had his own feelings he took into account. He investigated her himself. He took, he took, he took uh, the temperature of the people around him. I mean, it was actually a very impressive piece of leadership on the part of Picard and and like all good decisions, it also had, you know, serious and sometimes negative consequences. And that's doing the right thing doesn't always mean getting the right thing in the end. Yeah. That's and that's a really good point, because, you know, sometimes, you know, decisions are made in the past and then the, the decision turns out to be like not maybe the best one, you know, based on what happened after but it doesn't necessarily mean like that the decision was wrong for the time. Like, that's a really good point. Right. I'm content. I'm thinking of something specifically now. I'm not going to, uh, but you know, like, like, you know, in the political world and stuff, you know, things, decisions were made like, you know, 17 years ago or something. And there's all a bunch of people that, you know, want to poo poo that and, you know, you know, bring out the blame game and stuff like that. But that's a really good point. Decisions are made at the time that they're made you know, with the information that is available at the time. And then, you know, you just negotiate that, right? And so now here we are. And what can you do? It's just Yeah. It. But I mean you if you if you did you did what you what you believe was the right thing at the time. And you never know. It, the idea that you can know the outcome of something is almost, you know, you of course and you can't. And then someone said something to me that's really that's really wise that history is meant to be uh, uh, looked at through the lens of history, like yes. it's really really narcissistic and just asshole. Excuse my language, but I'm just gonna say it. It's an asshole move to look at the past through the lens of the present. It's just really unhelpful. And right. just, well, because they don't know what you know. Exactly. <laughs> you can't you like, can't you know, you know you can't you can't say well you know you should know that of course why should they know that you know exactly you know so, so. have we how are we doing Do we i think we like did a we, good we, job we did a good mm -hmm. job and we hey we have like it's like an hour hour and i think yeah i think we did a good job, we good? Do a good job? yeah are we good? Okay. We're good until next time. Are we good for okay. this next week again? Do this. If you would like, that'd be that'd be great. I just had something to talk about the descent, but okay. <laughs> What's that? I had something to talk about the. Oh the, sure. The oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, but one interesting thing about the descent is is you you have this thing, and it's part of going to their decision with who, and uh, and it inter he goes onto this uh, Borg ship, and it interrupts. Their high thinking, mm -hmm. 
and it's interesting because when you have uh, such a big thing it's like a like uh, like a hive and you try to replace it or you just or you try to dismantle it it leaves a void mm -hmm. and and uh, chances are something worse will come in and and, and stuff now uh, there's two examples of this and it's good and it's interesting that where people don't learn from history um because uh, the first thing bringing up is the the the, the Iraq war where, where you know where the so-called war war over weapons of mass destruction they they remove this um huge cult-like leader who has a iron fist control over the whole area and when they remove him some have ISIS and all these other groups uh, suddenly coming up and uh, and replacing that void, you know. Um, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, uh, could we have learned this from history? And then I think, yes, there's a direct thing in history because we look at the uh, the Weiner government in Germany in the 1930s, and uh, we uh, the West did nothing to support them. Mm -hmm. Right. And and eventually they became so weak that something had to replace that. And what it got replaced with um became for the 20th century the ultimate evil that we saw that ever seen. Um and so there was a lesson that to be learned there in history that got repeated. And uh, and and it's interesting because this is what the sense sort of picks up on, and law is is taking that evil wall and comes in and takes advantage of of this um, breakdown of the hive, uh, this void, and he offers them another solution, his solution, and he becomes the dictator. And uh, yeah, I wonder that you know I think about Europe, you know, and. Of course, religion in Europe is, I mean, Christianity in Europe is basically dead. I mean, it's Christianity in Europe is really on its on its on its last uh, on its last legs. And maybe what's kind of come to replace that is, you know, ethnic identity. You know, you see all over Europe, you see all these kind of right wing, you know, these kind of right wing whites, uh, you know, kind of supremacist type type groups. Mm. And you know, maybe they maybe they kind of offer you know that that identity that hive that you know religion has kind of you know left uh, you know kind of been sucked out of uh, of you know European secular society. I mean, so there's always something, you know. There's always there's always uh, there's always something, mm -hmm. um, and there's always someone. You know, there's it's 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 I I think that that those vacuums attract people like lore, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with cult videos. I'm yeah. upset. I've, I've mentioned this before. Like I watch, I have got all these cult leaders. I just am obsessed with them. And there's all the exact, they're all exactly the same. Have you, then you must, I don't know if you're a Netflix person, but have you seen how to be a cult leader on Netflix? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> yes I, I, so I love that. It's a great one. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that stuff too. Actually, we got something in common. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's just because it's it's such an interesting playbook, you like know. It just and, fascinates me how people work. Yeah. Like it's like a machine. 
Like it really, yeah. we are like, like we are like, like, like machinery, the way our social like mechanisms, if you will, work together. Like, yeah. because really yeah. we are just neural networks that are connected to each other and our brains are made. That's the difference between us and lizards. Lizards don't have a social brain. They don't have a social nervous system. We have one. We need to yeah. develop it so we can live our lives without dying. You know? what, what do I always say? What's my famous saying thing? I don't know. I can't About remember. people's thinking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no internal thinking. Yeah. <laughs> no internal thinking he's yeah. always reminding me yeah because a lot, a lot of people yeah. don't realize that there's a good segment of society about 30 percent do not do internal thinking wow it, it just baffles me and i'm yeah. always like why but, do people but and he's like roxanne yeah. roxanne stop and i'm like oh yeah say it no internal thinking <laughs> yeah and uh, and you see this on the you realize uh, it's a shock when you realize these people exist and the, you see them especially if you travel the bus i travel on the bus on transit and i see huh. these people every day <laughs> and then and i work with people like this the people who that people when the work is finished they don't look around for what else can i do mm -hmm. They just stand there waiting for the next order to come in. <laughs> right, you're yeah. sort of you're sort of defined by your task, you know. Yeah, and they just stand there. They literally but just stand there. They're waiting. Like, They're waiting. You know, a lot of people don't maybe <laughs> teach their kids. Like, like I remember, you know, we used to tell our our oh, my oldest son's name is Logan. Um, we used to tell Logan, you know, Logan's dad used to say, "Okay, well, you know, don't just stand there. Look around. There's lots of stuff to be done." like just make yourself useful you know like think about think about it like you know put your brain in gear he used to say yeah. that was one of his things put your brain in gear like think about it like we don't maybe we like maybe there's like this thing this i sort of almost feel like we're like in this sort of like borgy society where sometimes like people are like oh am i allowed to have this thought <gasps> Am I allowed to have this really uncomfortable thought? Yes, honey. Yes, Virginia, you can have that thought. Well, you, well, it's you okay. It. Well, you think about it. The people who go home and they watching game shows and sitcoms and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Do you think they actually take a, a little time and read a book now and again? I don't think so. <laughs> Not so much. Not yeah. so much. My yeah. observation. So, so, so where did when do they actually do the the internal thinking where, or uh, exercising their conscience or anything no, right. like that? No, I mean I I grew, I grew up getting in trouble all the time for staring out the window when when I should have been looking, listening to yeah, you and me too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> me too. Uh, and what was I doing? I was off in my own world. I was, you know, I had, I had too much internal thinking. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, and some of the teachers um, figured that out, and uh, uh, I had English. English literature teacher and you, you realize that I was speed reading the book so fast and he just said you know what for, for, forget it just go to the library to start choosing your books and, mm -hmm. you know don't read the books we were doing in class <laughs> and uh, so that was great you know you realize that no, it was just what do they say go, um going to the beat of your own drum, drum you know that expression yeah. you know and, I think uh, it's like a it's like a matter of like teaching values, you know. Like I think mm -hmm. to be to teach your you know if, I was talking about you know child rearing. So mm -hmm. like to teach your kid like you know how to be an individual, like you teach them values. 
you know, like not just, okay, well, you know, the rule is this. I mean, like a value is like a contextual rule sort of, right? right? You know, where like sometimes the rule doesn't apply and sometimes the rule does apply, you know, and teach your kids like to, you know, fight um, oppression. And even you, <laughs> Robert's going to laugh. <laughs> even you, when they can stand up to you, <laughs> then yeah. you know that you've taught them well, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think that's a very, I mean, I think one of the, you know, I can say this as a religious person, one of the problems with religious, uh, kind of a religious approach to rules is that, first of all, a lot of times they're not very contextual. That's mm -hmm. kind of, a, you know, you know, once once you once you have uh, codes, so to speak, right, codes tend to be non-contextual, so that becomes a problem. And the second is that, you know, like authority, you know, these these hive systems depend upon authority and mm -hmm. questioning authority is always, is always, uh, is always problematic. Right. So, um, you know, teaching, teaching kids how to, I was, I taught high school seniors, you know, and teaching, teaching kids how to question authority is one of the hardest things to do because you're simultaneously being an authority because there you are, right. You're a teacher, you're part of a school, you're part of an institution, um, in my case, I'm a religious guy, so I kind of represent that for them. Mm -hmm. And yet, I'm also telling them, you know what? You are allowed to have your own mind, and you have to be able you have to be able to communicate that. You have to communicate it effectively, and you have to be able to stand up. And I want you to be an upstander and not a bystander, and all these things. And it's it's very complicated because because I want both from them. You know, I, I want them to be part of the hive and I want them to consider the needs of the of the hive, but I also want them to be able to stand up and I want them and I want them to respect my authority and I want them also to be able to stand up to me. To question your authority. Both. Yes, to question it. Sure. Absolutely. So you're teaching yeah. somebody to respect your authority and you're teaching someone to just call your bullshit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's so. Wow, that's yeah. tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I, think, I think one of the differences, the hive and, and that is the hive, when it comes to law, laws, that they're, they're the, they are absolute. Right. Right. And, mm -hmm. and when you're an individual, rules are a guideline. Right. And, uh, it... and it's not a matter of breaking the rules. It's just going... This bending is them. Well, no, not even bending them. Is it, this is a good rule. But you know what? I don't need it at this point. <laughs> you know, right? You know, uh, it doesn't. It, it doesn't quite. It doesn't fit. So I'm not going to apply. Yeah, it's interesting though how 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 you know Hugh when he's when he sort of starts to feel lonely. What does he start doing? He starts repeating. He he starts repeating the mantra, right? Resistance is futile. <laughs> right? He starts repeating that because it, it gives him comfort, okay. yeah. right? Yeah. Kind of like my world. You know, I, I don't. This is this is what's left of my world. You know, this is what's left of my social world. I don't have the voices in my head anymore. I'm separated from the collective. But like, as long as I keep saying this, as long as I keep, you know, as long as I I keep on task, right? Then I'm, you know, then I'm. I, I you know, there's there's. I'm still part of it as long as I keep on test. And a lot of people, I think they do that. The rules become the rules become their source of their source of comfort and their source of, uh, of strength. This is really um, the something that makes me think about um, 
the Catholic world. So I was born in 1968, which was four years after the big change in the church, the second Vatican II. Um, And that was really, really profound. And like a lot of people were upset and a lot of people left the church. A lot of people were very dramatically affected. Like their lives were absolutely upended. And they were really upset about it. And it caused a real big like spiritual thing it caused a real real thing in the community and like maybe you know if you're not if you weren't part of that world or whatever you you don't know about it but like it really did it like you know people had like their lovely little you know hive that was like removed from everything you know and they were just you know in their cloisters away from everything and all of that was just ripped away all of the veil was ripped away if you just imagine how i from my perspective how i see it is like when you rip a band-aid away right and it's you know you pull a scar it was very dramatic yeah very very dramatic and like like in my the when I what what I grew up with was the people that stayed, <laughs> the people that stayed. Like there were a lot of people that left, and right. the people that I would grew up around were the people that stayed after the change. Right. And like like that. Like I didn't appreciate it at the time because I was just a kid. But like that was really interesting to see. Like it was like a transformation that happened over time of like the like the metamorphosis of the hive if you will right like right you know and it was like really like fascinating i think it was almost like for the greater good that you know because the catholic world became more like you know able to like be self-critical you know like individual catholics you know could like begin to like see the abuses that were happening and this, you know stuff like that and like you know religious tolerance was a bit more and so on and yeah. so forth you know so like that was like really like that was like really profound like really like profound alteration of the hive mind that whole yeah. thing that really really like I can't even describe how like profound yeah yeah no it's really no it's a big, very big deal it's a very big deal yeah, and then that's you know, and and again, you know, that's the injection of new ideas, you know, and 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 there's a really good example of having absolutely no idea how that would turn out, because on the one hand, it completely transformed the church. On the other hand, it also helped bring, I mean, bring down the church in a certain respect, mm-hmm. because the 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 new openness is what kind of allowed for the possibility of exposing all this stuff that was going on. Right. And, uh, you know, ha- had they known, you know, had, had, had uh, Pope John known that that was what was going to happen. I'm not sure whether he would, you know, would have done that, but, you know, he, he had no idea. And I mean, I think that, it was got somebody before him that, that right. brought in those changes. And you know, what's something that's really, really interesting. Something that I read about the Vatican too. Um, is that it was a non-Catholic woman. It was like a Jewish woman who was oh, really? the inspiration for the change. That's her interesting. Name, I don't know if you've heard of her, Simone Weil. Oh, yes, 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 of course, yeah. Simone Weil, yeah. She, she uh, inspired the um, man who would become the Pope. It was before John. Oh, that's Pope. interesting. She's a very uh, interesting theologian. She's really, really was fascinating. Something. Yeah, she's it's worth too reading. Bad she, it's too bad she didn't live. She died very young. Right, she did. Right, she died very young. Yeah. She, she. I think she had a bit of. Um, you mentioned once something called scrupulosity. 
Yes. And I yes, think that she, she was yes. afflicted by that. But that yes. was something that I read that was I thought was really interesting. Um, and so like I thought, I mean, that we're off topic, but I think it's kind of cool how like, you know, a Catholic cardinal, I don't even think that he was the Pope yet. And it wasn't John Paul, it was somebody before him, um, the guy before him. Um, who like was inspired he heard about her and he like went to visit her or something like that and he oh. like you know yeah. Like, yeah she 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 said something once um i'm trying to remember and she was really believed in a lot of christian myth, um like uh like mysticism and stuff yes but yeah. she did not want to be a part of the institution Yes. She did not want to be a part of the hive. Yeah, mind. and she she had a great she had a great line about that. I'm trying to remember exactly what she said, but she said some it, it was exactly like that. It was like it's like as soon as the the church becomes an institution, it says I, I'm out. <laughs> that yeah. Was, that was yeah. her 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 sense. It was like like it, it's as soon as it becomes I, I it, it, at the time it really like blew my mind. I didn't realize that was related to Vatican II. That's interesting because yeah. it blew my mind at the time reading it because it's very it's very powerful and very and I've, I've, so. I've thought about it many times. Um, and know. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a community. I know not like you know religious communities are different, but I was fortunate enough to grow up in a community where like my okay, my dad my dad came from Guyana, so he grew up in a hindu family but he was a lapsed mm. hindu and he converted to catholicism and like my dad was like okay no i'm not going in the confessional that's dumb i'm not doing that like my dad <laughs> would just be like no i'm just not doing that i'm sorry that's just not how i'm gonna do it mm. and like and and he like the, the, yeah. the community indulged him and he like i think it was he was the one that started the trend in our part of the world where you didn't have to go in the closet the things right. you know you could just go in the corner over there and right. talk to the you know guy and talk to your right. do your thing whatever right? right like that was like i know not everyone had that ability to be like that's dumb and i'm not doing it that way i don't care what your rule says it's dumb although the closet <laughs> i thought was kind of cool i'm sorry yes. i i once went <laughs> A friend of mine, when I was a kid, you know, a friend of mine dared me to go. <laughs> so um, I had a lot of Catholic friends growing up and they dared me to go. So I went just to see what it was like. And it was, it, I, I thought it was very cool. I don't know. I, I like, you know, I thought the booth thing was, was, was slick. I don't know. Like, but, oh, the pose for the picture. Oh, wait, oops, wrong. Well, well, <laughs> exactly. well I'm the same. I've, I've been in Catholic churches. They're very cool to look at. Yeah, they are. They are. You know, I'm fascinated with churches and monasteries and things yeah. like that. But, but uh, I've never been a, a part of a organized religion. I was yeah. in a monastery once. I would think I was brought into the um, the provincial house of the Grey Nuns once, um, because my aunt had a very best friend who was a Grey Nun, and it was like I almost felt like I, I almost felt like I was too sinful to be in there. To be honest, a Grey like, Nun. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the Sisters of Charity. This is um, Charity. The Sisters of Charity, and she was this lovely lady who like everything about her was perfect her writing was like perfect she was like there was nothing she never made a mistake i'm not even exaggerating it's just like this perfect person and i was i don't even know i was a kid and i was 
brought in air to wait or something. And it was just the weirdest thing. I just was like, I don't belong in this world. This world is too nice and pure for me. Anyway, <laughs> my one day I'll talk about my 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 monk adventures. Oh yeah, I, hey, I, you probably have lots of stories to tell about being in India. And I have all sorts of weird stories. Well, anyway, I should get going. Yes, mm-hmm. we've we've done enough, and uh, we'll meet next so, week. Right? Thank you so much for inviting me for this. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for coming to my living room. Also, yes, we very, love nice. Your living room. very nice looking. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank very you. We love you. We love There's your the sword room. over the over the. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> okay. So. Awesome. Thank you for indulging me, and uh, we'll meet again next week. Okay. 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 Bye. Bye. How's that? Good. I don't know what you need to do. I just end. I just end, and then it sends me to the to the uh, the recording link. Okay. Okay. So I can leave you now. Yeah, I'm. I'm ending the meeting.